off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the opportunity to once again engage this terrific book that is full of godly wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set aside the cares and occupations of the day and that instead you would help us to focus in on you and the things of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together and for this technology that enables us to do this. Pray that you would guide our time tonight for we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So welcome to everybody, glad you are here. And we are gonna begin as usual with our scripture verse from 2 Peter 1. So I'd encourage you to say this aloud with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this is such a great passage that is relevant in so many ways, but it's, a, I think, chiefly a reminder that the things that pertain to life and godliness are granted to us in Jesus Christ. So that is something for which to be incredibly thankful every day. So we are, uh, as usual, uh, going to welcome the newcomers that are here um, either live with us on Zoom or coming through the podcast or uh, the YouTube channel. And I want to just say a word to the newcomers about how to approach this class. I am just very glad that you're here. This is a great book with so much potential to impact your life. Uh, but I'm happy to have you on whatever terms work for you. Uh, some of us in this class are on the beach, which means we're kind of sort of paying attention some of the time. Uh, but we are feeling free to go get snacks. We may not be reading anything. We certainly are not doing any homework, but we're just kind of on the osmosis method. And if that's all you want to do, that's great. If you want to snorkel uh, where you go deeper on particular things that interest you, that is great as well. Happy to have you do that. And if you want to scuba dive, if you want to read the extra books, if you want to read the articles, if you want to listen to all of the music and reflect on the words and all of those kinds of things, I'm delighted to have you do that as well. So whatever works for you uh, is great. Uh, just a reminder, if you are not on my email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and uh, send us a little note and we'll get you added and that way you can get the class materials. Also, just a reminder about how to read this book uh, many of us had the experience first time reading Mere Christianity of uh, really not liking it and feeling overwhelmed and that it was not very clear. Uh, and I would suggest the problem with that is that because it was broadcast talks that were broadcast a week apart that gave you a long time to chew, that we suffered from information overload. So I really encourage you to read aloud, read one chapter at a time, and the C.S. Lewis Doodle is also a great resource um, that can help you to be able to 
uh, understand things that maybe are not clear in class. So I've got yet another setup for music tonight. Um, so we will see if it works. Um, I'm gonna play a little something that is very relevant for tonight. And if you think you know what it is, uh, you can send me a little message in the chat. Okay, well, let me see about this. Once again, it seems to not want to cooperate with me. Okay. Bill McRae gets it right, uh, not only with the title of the hymn, but also the title of the tune and the composer. So if I had a gold star, I would give it to you. Um, that hymn is called All My Hope on God is Founded. And the tune is a wonderful tune called Michael by the great English composer Herbert Howells. Uh, it is a marvelous hymn uh, that's very popular in England, less well known in this country. But I would um, encourage you to listen when this uh, comes out in the email, or if you want to look it up on your own before then. It's such a great hymn theologically. And I want to just share a few of the words with you. It says, all my hope on God is founded. He doth still my trust renew. Me through change and chance he guideth, only good and only true. God unknown, he alone calls my heart to be his own. Human pride and earthly glory, sword and crown betray his trust. What with care and toil he buildeth, tower and temple fall to dust but God's power hour by hour is my temple and my tower. So it is a, it's a great hymn. One of the things that is interesting about it is that the words are written by a German um, named Joachim Neander. And he unfortunately led a very short life. Uh, he died at the age of 30. Uh, he was a wild teenager really, really wild and licentious, had a dramatic conversion to the faith. And as part of that conversion, really believed that he could experience not only in the beauty of the church service, but also in the beauty of nature uh, in the uh, valley that was near where he lived in Germany. So he would walk and pray in this valley. 
And eventually that valley was named for him. It became known as the Neander Valley. And it's famous for us today because the fossils that gave rise to Neanderthal man were found in that valley. And so that goes all the way back to Joachim Neander, whose most famous hymn you might know, praise to the Lord, the almighty, the king of creation. So anyhow, it's a great hymn uh, that I commend to you. And we're gonna talk a little bit about hope um, tonight. So uh, it's very appropriate. Just a review of context. We're in a time where there wasn't much hope. England in World War II, uh, the Blitz, the Baedeker bombing, all of these things going on, these talks being broadcast in 1942, where it's still the darkest days of World War II. And Lewis is going into the BBC headquarters, the target of the Luftwaffe to deliver these addresses. And as we've said, this book builds on itself. So he started off just with what was observable, not with talking about the gospel or anything related to it, but the idea of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. This whole universal ancient question of who we are, how did we get here? How did the cosmos come to be? And that very peculiar thing about humans that we may not always behave well, but we have a very strong idea of what we ought to have done even when we didn't do it. So he talks about how important that is in discerning that there's something more than just the material world. He then goes on in book two to describe what Christians believe and talks about how one of the things that led him out of atheism was this whole idea of understanding just and unjust, uh, that good and evil have no meaning if there's not a standard against which to judge them. And he uses the great image of the earth, our world as being enemy occupied territory, that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and disguise and calling us all to take part in a campaign of sabotage. And that when we go to church, we're participating in that, listening to the orders from the high command about what to do. And Lewis talks about free will and happiness and all of these things and concludes this particular part of the second book with his trilemma. The idea that Jesus cannot simply be a good teacher that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be a liar or the devil of hell. So that is something that is important for us to continue to consider today, because there are so many in our culture that want to just dismiss Jesus as a good teacher and say he never claimed to be the son of God which if you read the gospels is absolute balderdash or whatever words you would choose for that. Um, it's very clear in the gospels that Jesus claimed over and over again to be the son of God. Lewis then goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus certainly did come to teach, but that was not the major point of his coming. The major point of his coming, which we've just celebrated in our Anglican tradition with the 40 days of Lent and then Passion Tide and then Easter was that he came to give his life on the cross to shed his blood and to be raised from the dead to open the way for eternal life and to make it possible for us when we come into relationship with him to have that Christ life mystically planted in our hearts and our souls where the Holy Spirit 
lives within us. So part of the interesting thing about Lewis is that he, he and the BBC didn't want to leave it there of just what do Christians believe, but they wanted to take it further about Christian behavior. And another lens of looking at that is, so what difference does it make? If Christians believe this, how does it show up in their actual living? And so Lewis starts off with talking about morality and the three parts of morality, fair play and harmony between individuals, which is really the only sort of morality we think much about in our culture, but also the tidying up, the harmonizing of things inside each individual. This whole idea of the virtuous life, the idea that you are living out the fruit of the spirit and that what goes on in your inner world makes a difference because it is out of the abundance of the heart that a man acts and thinks and speaks. So Lewis is saying this internal morality is hugely important. And then he says the overarching morality that we also tend to ignore today is what is the purpose of human life? Are you a free agent or were you created by God where you actually belong to him? So there are several important implications of this. One is that we as Christians need to re-engage the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. And if you are snorkeling or scuba diving and you never read Psalm 19 back when we talked about that, please do yourself a favor and go do that. Um, one of the issues we have in the church today is we're so anxious to want to conform to the culture because we think that will make people come in the doors that we are all too willing sometimes to throw out the beauty of the word of God, the plan that God has for the human race and how we relate to him and to one another. We also need to be all about building bridges. We have been given by Jesus the ministry of reconciliation, but we are all too prone to want to judge those who differ from us. We don't want to build a bridge. We're more likely to want to burn the bridge. But the fact of the matter is, we need to be the ones to build the bridge. Um, one of the podcasts that's a favorite of Jane's to listen to that I would commend to you is the Breakpoint Con podcast from the Colson Center. And one of the things that they talk about a lot on that podcast is the idea, if we can't get these things right in the church, how can we expect the culture to ever come alongside? And how can the culture ever come alongside unless the church builds a bridge? So remember Jesus's words, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So Lewis then goes on to talk about the cardinal virtues. And we've joked about how these sound like somebody's great grandmother, uh, maybe even names of someone's great grandmother, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Those are not words that are in most of our everyday conversation, but Lewis wants us to reclaim them, to look at the wisdom that's in scripture that commends all of these character qualities. Um, particularly the book of Proverbs um, is full of these character qualities that are virtues. And the idea that if we practice these virtues, practice means try over and over and over again. When we practice them, we begin to get through perseverance, 
a certain quality of life that we call character, something that is desperately needed in our world today. So then the next chapter is on social morality. And Lewis says that one of the things here to get clear is that Christ didn't preach a new morality. And the second thing is that he did not have a detailed political program. Jesus dealt with individuals, even though he was in a corrupt and an oppressive regime um, that really abused people, he did not take on the government or systemic anything. He focused on individuals and trying to draw those individuals to the kingdom of God. And as Lewis says, we cannot learn to love our neighbors as ourselves until we learn to love God. And we can't learn to love God except by learning to obey him. So he says we're driven um, from this idea of the great society um, and the social morality right back to this idea of being in relationship with Jesus. Now, certainly the church needs to respond to need and injustice and all of those kinds of things. But the way that it does it is by inviting people into the kingdom. And this is something that we need to get a hold of. The fourth chapter is basically Lewis's Jeremiah uh, against Freud. He basically says Freud got it right about psychotherapy, about talking to a therapist that can help you. But he says everything else Freud talked about, whether it's the Oedipus complex or the Electra complex or some of his suppositions about religion, that all those things are utterly wrong and in direct contradiction to Christianity. And that one of the things we have to understand is that much of the educational system, not only here, but in Western Europe and other places, has been deeply colored by Freud. And so it's there even when we haven't uh, been aware of it. So we have to uh, sift carefully through a scriptural and Christian worldview. And Lewis points out that part of the thing that's important in understanding morality is to realize that Jesus meant it when he said, judge not that you be not judged. And he says, part of the reason for that is that we humans only judge by the external actions that we see. And he says, God judges by moral choices. And the difference between us and God is that we only see the results that a man's choices make out of his raw material. And God instead knows what the man's raw material is and judges him on what he's done with it. We all start with different uh, handicaps in our lives. And some of us, um, as Lewis said, if we've been blessed with good health and great parents and a prosperous upbringing, um, we may look virtuous, but in fact, the person that was uh, brought up in a single parent home um, in a slum infested by drugs that does even one tiny act for his neighbor in love may be far ahead of us in terms of actual virtue. Lewis then talks about keeping the eternal perspective, which is that every time we make a choice, every time we choose an action or a word or a habit or a sequence of events, those choices are turning us, our souls, into something a little different from what they were before. They're either leading us toward God or away from him. And that those are the things that we have to be aware of because when we fail to be aware of that, 
we can end up being dragged by our choices into a direction far away from God. And I love this quotation from James Montgomery Boyce, the mature Christian knows he's always living in Romans 7 apart from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he knows that dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something he has attained once for all, but that it is the result of a daily struggle and constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? Is it an awareness of how good we are becoming? Or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are? So we will continually turn to and depend on Jesus Christ. If we are mature in Christ, we know it is the latter. And here I want to just give a little plug again for that Question of God program, uh, which is such a great um, aid, I think, in understanding the difference between Lewis and Freud. Um, also a plug for that little Tim Keller pamphlet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and just a reminder about how important choice is. The fifth chapter was on sexual morality, and Lewis um, says chastity is the most uh, unpopular Christian virtue. And he says there's no way to get around it. The old Christian rule that comes straight out of scripture is either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And he says our cultural view of sexuality has gone completely off the beam. We bought into the idea that we are the human animal. And because of that, when we just follow our instincts like uh, a deer in rut, we are doing what we should do. And that is absolutely contrary to what the scriptures teach. And he talks about three reasons this virtue is difficult, um, that we're surrounded swimming in wrong thinking from our culture, that there's a sense of futility, um, that we don't believe in perseverance. If we try and fail, we give up. And Lewis says, no, 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 no try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, try and try and try again, because that's where character comes from. Um, he then talks a little bit about um, how important it is to guard the scriptural standard. This is an area where the church is full of confusion. And if it would stick to the scriptures, um, we would all be much better off. The sixth chapter is on Christian marriage. And he talks about how we have bought into um, what I, you could either call a Hollywood view of love and marriage or a bad 70s Hollywood Holiday Inn lounge song about feelings, uh, but that we have just totally set aside what the scriptural concept of marriage is. And the scriptures and, and what Jesus says marriage is for life. We become one flesh in marriage, and that we make promises and vows that are important, that are made before God. And he says the problem is that in our culture, we have exalted feelings. Can you imagine what he would think now? He was writing in the 1940s. Now we really have made feelings the ultimate standard of everything. And he says, part of the problem is that we think feeling and love is the most important thing and that it trumps commitment. And if we don't feel and love anymore, then we can throw our commitments out. Lewis also says feeling and love is not the same thing as loving. Loving in the scriptural definition 
is a choice and it is an action. It is not a state of feeling. It's not infatuation or obsession or any of those kinds of things. And then he says, one of the worst things that's happened is this idea of the perfect partner. The idea that somewhere out there in the world is your soulmate, that person who looks exactly like you always wanted them to look, who completes you in every way, who worships the ground that you walk on, who will do whatever you want. So you will always, always be happy and never shed a tear ever again or feel unfulfilled or angry or any of those things. Well, of course, that is ridiculous. It's crazy. No person could ever do that. But we buy into that myth. And then when our poor spouse doesn't live up to all that, we think, well, clearly I made a mistake. I didn't pick the perfect partner. I'd better trade this one in and get a better model. Well, that is not what the scriptures teach us. Lewis then goes on to talk about the fact that civil marriage and Christian marriage are not the same thing and that conflating them leads to a host of problems. And then he closes with what he calls the unpopular doctrine of headship, mutual submission, and complementarity. And if it was unpopular in the 1940s, I don't even know what word he would use to describe it now, maybe anathema. So uh, the next chapter is on forgiveness. And Lewis considered after he wrote this chapter that maybe this was even more unpopular than chastity because we all have that person in our life. You know who that person is, that one that did whatever it was to you that was so beyond the pale that certainly God couldn't ever want you to forgive that person because that person was evil and they did it on purpose to make you suffer. Well, unfortunately, God does want you to forgive that person. The scriptures are very clear. And as Lewis says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And Lewis points out that Jesus says over and over again that in some mystical way, our forgiveness by God is tied to our forgiveness of others. It's right there in the middle of the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Lewis says one lens for getting a handle on forgiveness is this whole idea of self-love and fondness. That most of us love ourselves and we take care of ourselves, but we're also very aware of our faults. Um, and we can look at some of the things we do with horror, but at the same time, we can love ourselves. And he says, this is a good example of what it means to hate the sin, but to love the sinner and that we need to reclaim that idea. He also says that it's important for us not to get possessed by bitterness and hatred and resentment. That when we have people that we've deemed our enemies, um, we should not be always looking for them to fulfill our idea of how bad they are and then rejoice when they do something bad that hurts someone else. Instead, we should wish that they would be drawn to the kingdom of God and we should be praying for them. He also talks about how resentment is one of the worst things that can ever happen to us. And that when, when that resentment turns our hearts so that we start demanding our rights 
and start insisting on our rights all the time, then we have lost our way. And of course, our culture is rife with that. We talked about the example from uh, the great divorce of the murderer who's in heaven and then his old boss um, who is in hell. And he is just beside himself that this murderer could be forgiven. And he says, I want my rights. I only want my rights. I want what's coming to me. I don't want anyone's bleeding charity. And of course, the saved man in heaven says, what you really do want is the bleeding charity. What you want is Christ on the cross, because that is the only hope for you. And then there's this little image from the 1961 preface to Screwtape, um, which sounds a lot like our culture today. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance and resentment. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion and ruin. And if Lewis could see uh, what is called by pundits cancel culture, he would look at all of us and say, I told you so. So last week we talked about the great sin, uh, which is the sin of pride. And Lewis talked about how he believes that this is the center of Christian morality, that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we set ourselves up, remember that temptation when the serpent says, that did God really say not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then he says, the reason that he did not want you to is that when you eat of that fruit, then you will be like God. And the idea is that we want to set ourselves up as our own gods. So Lewis says, uh, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, Drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And this passage we talked about last week um, is the part of mere Christianity that was read to the Watergate burglar, um, Nixon's general counsel, Chuck Colson, um, that tugged on his heart and led him after hearing this, to go out into his car in the driveway of his friend's house and weep and pray that Christ would save him. So Lewis then talks about how pride always means enmity, hatred, and that it is all about looking down on other people and thinking that you are in some way superior to them. And he says, religious pride, self-righteousness is the very worst kind just like we saw um, in Jesus's continual conflicts with the Pharisees and that great parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector where Jesus tells the story and says, the Pharisee stood and prayed about himself thus, I thank thee, O God, that I am not like other men, that I tithe, that I do all of these things and especially that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And it says the tax collector would not even approach toward the altar and kneeled and cowered and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, and the tax collector is the one who went home justified. 
Pride is a spiritual cancer that eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So Lewis then goes on to talk about how certain ways of using the word pride are not sin and that we don't need to avoid those, but that it's important to make sure that we don't let those lead us into pride. And then he talks about humility. And this I think is one of the most important parts of this book. He says, do not imagine if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's just a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and a biggest step too, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. And what Lewis is saying here is that humility is the key to godly living. And that the way that that works is focusing not on yourself, but you're so focused on loving others that you are self-forgetful, like that little Keller pamphlet. And that uh, montage that's sort of a Lewis quote, uh, but not exactly, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So it's important for us uh, not to be blinded by our narcissistic culture and to realize what, what pride really is. And that we need to beware the example of the Pharisees, um, particularly those of us who are Christians, to not become self-righteous. And that we need to cultivate gospel self-forgetfulness, a servant heart, and empathy. Remember, even Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talked about that beautiful music that you didn't hear last week, uh, but that I hope you listened to in the link in the email. Um, love one another from a pure heart fervently. And it's almost impossible to be proud if you are really and truly loving each other with a pure heart fervently. So that brings us to tonight's chapter on charity, uh, which is um, what Lewis is translating here is the Greek word agape, um, which is selfless love. And he says, I said in an earlier chapter, there were four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues. The three theological ones are faith, hope, and charity. Faith is going to be dealt with in the last two chapters. Charity was partly dealt with in chapter seven, but there I concentrated on the part of charity called forgiveness. I now wanna add a little more. First, as to the meaning of the word, charity now simply means what used to be called alms, that is giving to the poor. Originally, it had a much wider meaning. You can see how it got the modern sense. If a man has charity, giving to the poor is one of the most obvious things he does. And so people came to talk as if that were the whole of charity. And the same rhyme is the most obvious thing about poetry. And so people come to mean by poetry simply rhyme and nothing more. But charity means love in the uniquely Christian sense. Love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, 
but of the will. That state of the will, which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. I pointed out in the chapter on forgiveness that our love for ourselves doesn't mean we like ourselves. It means we wish our own good. In the same way, Christian love or charity for our neighbors is quite a different thing from liking or affection. We like or are fond of some people and not of others. It's important to understand that this natural liking is neither a sin nor a virtue any more than your likes or dislikes in food are a sin or a virtue. It's just a fact. But of course, what we do about it is either sinful or virtuous. Natural liking or affection for people makes it easier to be charitable toward them. It is therefore normally our duty to encourage our affections, to like people as much as we can, just as it is often our duty to encourage our liking for exercise or wholesome food. Not because this liking is itself the virtue of charity, but because it is a help to it. On the other hand, it's also necessary to keep a very sharp lookout for fear our liking for some one person makes us uncharitable or even unfair to someone else. There are even cases where our liking conflicts with our charity toward the person we like. For example, a doting mother may be tempted by natural affection to spoil her child, that is to gratify her own affectionate impulses at the expense of the child's real happiness later on. But though natural liking should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people are cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more a sin than bad digestion is a sin. And it does not cut them out from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning charity or Christian love action, not feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. There is indeed one exception. If you do him a good turn, not to please God and obey the law of charity, but to show him what a fine forgiving chap you are and to put him in your debt and then sit down to wait for his gratitude, you will probably be disappointed. People are not fools. They have a very quick eye for anything like showing off or patronage. But whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God, and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least to dislike it less. Consequently, though Christian charity sounds a very cold thing to people whose heads are full of sentimentality, and though it is quite distinct from affection, yet it leads to affection. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. The same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction.
The Germans perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become, and so on, in a vicious circle forever. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Some writers use the word charity to, to describe not only Christian love between human beings, but also God's love for man and man's love for God. About the second of these two, people are often worried. They feel that they ought to love God. They cannot find any such feeling in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Nobody can always have devout feelings. And even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either toward God or toward man, is an affair of the will. Let me say that again. Christian love, either toward God or toward man, is an affair of the will. If we are trying to do his will, we are obeying the commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. We cannot create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as a right. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or by our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. And my friends, that is great good news, that God's love is not wearied by our sins or our indifference or our failures, and it is quite relentless in going on loving us. So several implications from this chapter. The first is choose to love. And it's interesting because it is the other side of the coin from embracing the pride and narcissism rampant in our culture. There's that old adage that says, use things, love people. And we live in a world that loves people and uses, sorry, that loves things and uses people. And so often in our culture, there is no love. People are seen as tools, as steps on the ladder to our success or our self-actualization. And Christian love is the opposite of this, that we choose to love. We choose to love not because of merit in the other person, but because God tells us to. 
Secondly, we reject feelings as the only basis for reality and loving relationships. Um, this means that we embrace logic and facts, that we embrace commands and choices of the will. Feelings are not bad. It's great to love your friends and feel love for them, to love your spouse and to feel love, to feel love for God. But that cannot be the bedrock on which our relationships are built. They must be built on an act of the will. Thirdly, and I think this is such an important point that we miss um, because it's hiding in plain sight. School children can recite the golden rule. Well, maybe not today, but at least they used to be able to. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we've had that drilled into our heads, or at least some of us have, and we've forgotten what it really means. And a great way, if you are dealing with a familiar scripture passage, is to go to Eugene Peterson's brilliant paraphrase called The Message. And I believe that what Lewis was calling us here to do is to embrace a full and biblical understanding of the golden rule. And here's how Peterson puts it in this paraphrase of Matthew 7:12. Here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. And I, I love this because it involves considering, thinking about what do you want people to do for you? If you were thinking about what would be the greatest day ever in terms of how other people treated you, and to imagine what that would be, and then to take the initiative proactively and go do that for everyone that comes across your path. The problem for so many of us is we've changed the golden rule to mean don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. In other words, if you don't want people to be nasty to you, don't be nasty to them. If you don't want people to cut you off when you're driving on the interstate, don't cut them off. But that is not what the golden rule says. It says we are to imagine what we most desire from other people in terms of their behavior toward us and their treatment of us. And then we're to be proactively engaged in doing that for every person we come in contact with. My friends, if we in the church did that, it would turn the world upside down. And then lastly, focus daily on Jesus's words about the mark of the Christian and the obverse implication. Jesus said in John 13, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the greatest evangelism commandment in the scripture. If we did this, if we loved as Jesus loved, the world would be coming to see what it means to be Jesus's disciples because they would see it. But the problem is what they see is usually the obverse, that we're nasty and infighting and mean to each other and judgmental and hypocritical. And the world thinks, well, I want no part of that. All right, so tonight we're gonna to do something a little unusual and we're gonna zoom on um, through the chapter on hope because these two chapters are short and hope and love are connected. So the chapter on hope, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do it's not pie in the sky by and by. It is a real and certain and confident future 
Hope. Uh, a little book plug here. If you've never read N.T. Wright, Tom Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, do yourself a favor. It's awesome. So it does not mean that we are meant, that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because they were so occupied with heaven. They were not trying to build heaven on earth. They were trying to draw people into the kingdom of heaven and see that the kingdom of heaven had things that meant that the world needed to be changed. It's important to get that order correct. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that is of heaven, that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it could be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there's something wrong with you. You are only likely to get health provided you want other things more, food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Lewis goes on here to talk about longings, um, that great concept of Zainzut we've talked about before. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at and that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And there's a beautiful section in Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, um, that was delivered as a sermon um, in World War II in Oxford, um, just about these longings. And I'll send that in the email. Um, three responses to these longings. Lewis says there are two wrong ways of dealing with these longings and one right one. The first wrong way is the fool's way. The fool puts the blame on the things themselves. 
He goes on all his life thinking that if he only had tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something we are all after. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. It's like that old song, maybe this time. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman through the divorce courts, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, from sports car to sports car, always thinking that the latest is the real thing at last and always disappointed. The second wrong way is the way of the disillusioned sensible man. He soon decides the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one's young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used, as he would say, to cry for the moon. This is, of course, a much better way than the first and makes a man much happier and less of a nuisance to society. It tends to make him a prig. He's apt to be rather superior toward what he calls adolescence. But on the whole, he rubs along fairly comfortably. It would be the best line we could take if man did not live forever. But supposing infinite happiness really is there, waiting for us, supposing one really can reach the rainbow's end. In that case, it would be a pity to find out too late, a moment after death, that by our supposed common sense, we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. And then lastly, the Christian way. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Types and shadows. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse that longing, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my own true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. There's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they don't want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, etc., is of course a mere symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. Musical instruments are mentioned because for many people, not all, music is the thing known in the present life which most strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. 
crowns are mentioned to suggest the fact that those who are united with God in eternity share in his power and joy. Gold is suggest, mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven. Gold does not rust and the preciousness of it. People who take these symbols too literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. And clearly, that is not what he was talking about. Do not let despair that's rampant in our culture take root in your life. In case you've not noticed or you haven't watched the news lately, despair is rampant. It was bad before the pandemic and it's gotten even worse. Despair is at record levels in our culture. But as Christians, even if we are afflicted, we cannot be driven to despair. As we see in 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And we must always, as we see in 1 Peter, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But my friends, you will not be asked for an answer for the hope that is within you if you are like Eeyore, if you are always depressed, if you are always in despair, if the joy of the Lord is nowhere evident in your life, you will have been crushed down by the gods of this present world. And we as Christians cannot allow that to happen. The second thing that we must do, and ouch, this goes from preaching to meddling, we must flee from complaining and awfulizing. Complaining is the disease of our age, and it affects the church and Christians just as much as the culture. And we are told flat out in Philippians 2, do everything, which things, some things, those things that we liked because we're happy. No, do everything, every single thing we do without complaining and arguing. Well, let's all raise our hand if we did well with that this week. Um, this is so important because there are all sorts of studies that say people don't want to be around those who are complaining or the modern word for that, venting. If we do that, it drags other people down with us. There's a lot of psychological research that tells you to avoid people that complain because it will make you depressed, even if you weren't depressed when you started listening to them. And the third thing that's the other side of that coin is cultivate an eternal perspective. Cultivate and express gratitude. Hebrews 11, I would have loved to read the whole chapter, but we don't have time. It's the chapter that's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And Lewis borrows language about that other country from this chapter about how God has prepared a country for us, um, a homeland. And listen to this little excerpt. It talks about all of those heroes of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. My friends, we must appreciate and cultivate gratitude for this world and for the blessings God gives us in it. 
but we must cultivate that eternal perspective that we were not made for this world and that instead we were made for that other country, for heaven, that place where they need no light, nor lamp, nor sun, for Christ will be their all, where God will wipe every tear from their eyes. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. And there's a great section in Lewis's last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia that talks about this that I'll reference in the email as well. So that brings us to our closing passage, which again is very relevant for these character qualities. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the deep truth from your word that is expressed in these chapters about the Christian virtues of love and of hope. Lord, we live in a world that is filled with hatred and despair. And as St. Francis said, Lord, let us be the ones who sow these good things into this hurting world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent of hating people, to repent of failing to give thanks and choosing to complain and giving into despair. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are full of wonder and that through that, you would join us more and more to yourself, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.